these are the words that you say while thinking about other things, right? <laughs> when you get to that point and we're just about to have communion and we say these words and you rattle them off um, and you think about something else, you can, you're that talented, aren't you? I know. I know I'm not the only one who's so gifted that you can say the Lord's Prayer at the same time as thinking about something else. But we're slowing down. So, over, um, Alan started us in our first week talking about prayer. And the first line, which is, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Or in other words, our parent in heaven, holy is your name. And then um, two weeks ago, I preached on thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And focused on the idea that when we say these things, it's us taking responsibility for them. It's taking a vow that we are a part of bringing God's kingdom on earth. How are you bringing about God's kingdom today? And then last week, Alan talked about the line, give us this day our daily bread. Talking about asking for all of us, which means everybody, the whole world, for what we need for just one day. Not me, give me my luxuries, but give all of us our essentials. And that we also can be a part of answering that prayer. And today we get to talk about sin. Yay! Or forgiveness, right? Forgiveness is nicer than sin. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Those are heavy words. And I know for me, at various times in my life, those are more often than the others, sometimes the words that catch me. Because there's something going on in my life, and I, need, I know I need to, to work on forgiveness with somebody. And so these words catch us. So just in a few um, translations in the Bible, the same words, or the same verse, it translates as, forgive us our debts as we, as we forgive those who owe us something. Sometimes we say our debtors, depending on what church you go to and which version of the Lord's Prayer, but it really means those who owe us something, right? Those are the people. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Forgive us for the ways we have wronged you, just as we also forgive those who have wronged us. All of these words have the same meaning. Forgive us our debts in the same way that we forgive our debtors. So I learned... In Greek class in college, which my professor told me I would forget everything of, which is true, um, he threatened us, you know, like, you're going to forget everything because you're not going to practice this, and that happened. But I do remember that the word that is translated as also has the same, can be translated in the same way that being dependent on the second part first. And so this isn't just um, an idea that, yeah, that'd be a good thing for us to forgive, but it's essential that we ourselves are also forgiving. 
And if you don't trust my Greek translation, which you might have reason not to, um, in Matthew 6, not 16, but in Matthew 6, right immediately after Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer, not, there's not a verse in between it, right immediately after the end of the Lord's Prayer are these words. If you forgive other sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your sins. I don't like that very much, do you? That sounds not very gracious or loving, because that means I have to forgive in order for God to forgive me. And I'm not sure that's the way it works, right? It doesn't work like that, right? God forgives me first before I forgive other people. God loves us first, Becky always says. And that's true. But these words as well, I think, hold some truth for us that we're going to explore through some stories today. But first, um, Alan is at our family camp in Sangerville, Maine, about two hours away with our two daughters. And because they weren't going to be here today, I asked them if I could ask them what forgiveness is. And so I let, they let me take videos of them um, because they don't have to watch them with you all. <laughs> so um, they're going to explain a little bit of what forgiveness is. the idea that I've kind of drilled into my children that you shouldn't say you're sorry unless you mean it, right? If you say, I'm sorry, it doesn't really have any depth if you expect to do that same thing again. If you expect that in an hour or in a day or in some period of time, you're going to do that same thing, then sorry might be the appropriate thing, but please forgive me is not really what we're talking about. So, um, one of the beautiful things about grace is that it goes in multiple directions. And James Mulholland, in his book, Praying Like Jesus, which is um, what we're basing this series off of, says, grace has a dual purpose. It is intended to restore us to a proper relationship with God. We are forgiven so that we can climb into God's lap without fear or guilt. Grace is also intended to restore us to proper relationship with one another. God's desire is to see his children reconciled 
to one another. So grace is totally about my relationship with God, but it is also about my relationship with my other human beings on this planet. Our um, mission statement here at Hope Gateway is Micah 6.8, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. And one of the interpretations of that is, instead of love kindness, is love mercy. So for today, I thought it'd be good for us to be reminded of that. If we love mercy, that means we love compassion. That means we love non-judgmentalness. That means we love forgiveness, right? If we love mercy, then we are merciful to one another. We also hear this in the Beatitudes, also in Matthew chapter 6, which says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Which is that our mer- it starts with our mercy, and then God's mercy flows to us. It's not easy to love mercy is it? It's easy to be judgmental. It's not easy to be merciful. It's easy to condemn and to think the worst of other people. But today, we're learning about being merciful. So I have a weird story to tell you. It's a Jesus story. It's a story that Jesus told, but I have to tell you, I don't really like it. It's not my favorite verse in the Bible. I don't actually, um, I wish it wasn't there, kind of. But it is. So, and I think it has an important message to teach us today. So I'd like you, as well as myself, to sort of put on the cap that you do when you're reading a good book, or when you're watching a movie, and just take in all the pieces of the story from the beginning to the end, and see what it has to teach you. And it's important that these are the words of Jesus, but if that makes it harder for you to hear, and that you make um, conclusions before the end, then just live into the story. Because these... It's not a nice story, but it's a story with a message for us today. So this um, comes from Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21, with a question that Peter asks Jesus. And I'm reading from the version called The Voice. Peter said, Lord, when someone has sinned against me, How many times ought I forgive him? Once? Twice? As many as seven times? Jesus said, You must forgive not seven times, but seventy times seven. (coughs) Then Jesus continued, If you want to understand the kingdom of heaven... Another parable about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Think about a king. Are you thinking about a king? Think about a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. 
Just as the king began to get his accounts in order, his assistants called his attention to a slave who owed a huge sum to him. What 100,000 laborers might earn if they worked for 100 days. What 100,000 laborers might earn if they worked for 100 days. How much do you think that would be? Billions? If they get paid a living wage, right? (laughs) The slave, maybe an embezzler, had no way to make restitution. So the king ordered that he, his wife, their children, and everything the family owned be sold on the auction block. The proceeds from the slave sale would go toward paying back the king. It's not a nice story. Upon hearing this judgment, the slave fell down, prostrated himself before the king, and begged for mercy. Have mercy on me, and I will somehow pay you everything. The king was moved by the pathos of the situation. So indeed, he took pity. He had compassion on the servant. Told him to stand up and then forgave the whole debt. Forgave the whole debt. But the slave went and found a friend, another slave, who owed him a hundred days' wages. Pay me back the money, shouted the slave, throttling his friend and shaking him with threats of violence. The slave's friend fell down prostrate and begged for mercy. Have mercy on me and I will somehow pay you everything. But the first slave cackled and was hard-hearted and refused to hear his friend's plea. He found a magistrate and had his friend thrown into prison, where he said, you will sit until you can pay me back. But the other servant saw, the other servant saw what was going on. They were upset. So they went to the king and told him everything that had happened. The king summoned the slave, the one who had owed so much money, the one whose debt the king had completely forgiven. The king was livid. You slovenly scum. Not a nice line. You slovenly scum, he said, seething with anger. You begged me to forgive your debt, and I did. What would be the faithful response to such latitude and generosity? Surely, you should have shown the same charity to a friend who was in your debt. The king turned over the unmerciful slave to his brigade of torturers, and they had their way with him until he should pay his whole debt. 
that is what my Father in heaven will do to you, unless you forgive each of your brothers and each of your sisters from the very center of your heart. Not a nice story. So there's lots of things in that story that I wish weren't there. But what would you say is the good part of that story? What do you learn from a story like that? That you didn't know before you heard that story? Or that you didn't understand? Does anybody want to explain it? The king was a good guy. The king was a just king. And he he forgave a lot. A lot. This guy was a bad guy. He had embezzled lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of money. But did this forgiveness transform him? No, because he went right out and acted in the totally opposite way. The thing that I take from this story is that when we don't forgive, we ourselves are still imprisoned. It is one thing to be forgiven. We are really ready for God to forgive us, right? Most of the time, we are more than willing to say, yes, God forgave me, I did something bad, but I am forgiven. Or I am not perfect, but I am forgiven. But I want you to think for a minute about something that someone forgave you for. Maybe that was a spiritual experience, or maybe that was just a relational experience. You Messed up somehow when you said to someone, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I know that was wrong. Can you please forgive me? So think about that experience and hold that emotion for a minute. And then put yourself in the other role. Where you're really mad at somebody because they were not nice to you and it was probably intentional. And there was something that they did that they really shouldn't have done. And you're angry about it. And you've been angry about it for a while. And they just keep doing it. And then somehow, either by their initiative or your initiative, you find a way to let go of that. And you forgive them. It's a different feeling, isn't it? Being forgiven and forgiving someone are two different, distinct experiences. They're connected. They should be intimately connected. But it's not the same. And in order to, be, to understand what being forgiven is, we have to forgive. We have to forgive other people. So I said I had two stories. And this one is not a nice story either. (laughs) But you'll like it better. It's a story of Corrie Ten Boom, who was a Holocaust survivor 
from Holland. And she took it upon herself to go to Germany to teach people about forgiveness. So I have these words from her to share with you today. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat. A brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving among the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück, concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him. And the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors. And my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven. And could not. Betsy had died in that place. 
Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours, as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we, for, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment from God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had come home in Holland. I had, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to do so to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And I stood there with the coldness clenching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I know that too. Forgiveness is an act of will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Corey Ten Boom, in the same piece of writing, goes on to explain that there are other people in her life that she struggled with forgiving even after this experience. It wasn't that she suddenly reached this place where everyone in her life who ever offended her, her forgiveness just flowed out from. But she knew what forgiveness looked like. And she knew how it felt. And she knew that if she just raised her hand, that God would do the rest. She also wrote about 
forgiveness. Forgiveness is setting the prisoner free, only to find out that the prisoner was me. She needed to forgive the guard, probably more than he needed her forgiveness. And I think in many situations in our lives, the burden that we carry around of not forgiving someone is a greater burden for us than it is for them. She also says, forgiveness is the key that unlocks the door of resentment and the handcuffs of hatred. These words from Matthew 6 are not nice words. They're not easy words. But if we are unwilling to be a giver of forgiveness, then we can never truly know what it is to be forgiven. If we hold on ourselves to resentment, then God's forgiveness is locked up in us. Or we are locked up in that resentment. James Mulholland says, When we pray, forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We are praying a prayer of proportion. Do we want God to come down to our level, or are we pledging to rise to God's level? Do we want heaven to be as it is on earth, or do we want earth to be as it is in heaven? What measure do we want God to use when we stand before God's throne? Do we want God to use the measures that we have applied to others? Or do we yearn for God's infinite grace? When I remember that those who are naked and without shelter, sick and imprisoned, Starving and dying of thirst will also stand before the throne. I hope for buckets of forgiveness from God and from them. I hope for buckets, vats of forgiveness from God and from everyone in the world that I haven't done what I should for and what I haven't, what I have done that I shouldn't. God's forgiveness is vast and our challenge is to live that same forgiveness. Amen.